Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. On this special edition of the podcast, we talk with Dr. Cameron Howard, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, about her latest book, The Old Testament for a Complex World, How the Bible's Dynamic Testimony Points to New Life for the Church. We talk about biblical interpretation as being less like digging for buried treasure and more like an atomic reaction that generates new energy when text and interpreter come together. We discuss the multiple authors of the Hebrew Bible and the way they represent not a unified voice that speaks to us in absolutes, but a diverse set of witnesses that invites us into a conversation about God and the life of faith. And we discuss the ways in which the Bible remixes ancient Near Eastern traditions how that might be a model for creating our own theological remixes today. It's a fascinating conversation, y'all. Thanks for joining us. Well, hey, Amy, how are you this week? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm sitting at the church camp outside Little Rock where uh, my daughter goes to preschool now. And so I sit here during the day next to this beautiful lake and I write things and today I'm podcasting, and all week I've been out here, and it has been so quiet and beautiful. Today, on podcast day, lawnmower right outside my window. It's great. That's, that's really lovely. Yeah. It's, it's a reminder of our place in the universe. <laughs> but is. we are not alone today. We are not alone today. We're here with our friend Cameron Howard who is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, home, I might say, of the very narrative lectionary that is the subject of our podcast. Ooh, yes, <laughs> I know that. Yeah. Yes, it was invented at Luther Seminary. Wow. Oh, yeah, wow. and the official Narrative Lectionary podcast is uh, out of Luther still, indeed. Yes. So we're going to talk with Cameron about uh, the Narrative Lectionary a little bit later because she writes about it a little bit in the book, <laughs> oh, <that's awesome. laughs> which I'm super excited. Fantastic. yes. So, so hey, Cameron, how are you? I'm doing well. I am thrilled to see you both. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. Yeah, Cameron was our colleague at Emory back in the day. Um, and well, you were one year behind us, right? So we had classes together for a little while. For a little while. I have to say, I um, the first year that I was in coursework at Emory, there were no other women in coursework. And, yeah. and there were some women who were further along in the program, but you don't see very much of them. So it was a very lonely <laughs> experience, <laughs> gender-wise. I don't yeah. know. It was an experience. It was it was notable to me. Um, and then the year afterwards, there was a class of three women who came yeah. in, um, and Cameron was one of them. And it just, you know, as soon as she, as soon as I saw her face and heard her voice today, it just reminded me of that, like the comfort of oh, there are <laughs> other women in the world yes. who read the biblical text. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And when I was trying to write my dissertation and had an infinite home, Amy came over and kept Isaac, my baby, for a couple of hours one afternoon. Are and I went to me? the library and I wrote some that day, but I also remember just sitting in silence in the <laughs> library for a little yeah. while. That is amazing. Silence is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I have an oh, infinite yeah. home right now. I don't know if you knew that, Cameron. I just had a baby um, no, about six weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So I can never retire, basically. Uh, I have to work till I'm 80 to get my kid through college. Mm. But um, I know what you speak of with noisy homes and trying to get things done. But Amy has not volunteered to come to Arkansas and babysit for me. <laughs> <laughs> totally would. Totally would. Yeah. Oh, the other thing that we should, that I don't know if you know about me, Cameron, is that I am now officially a student at Luther Seminary. Do you know that? I did not know that. How I, is I that? figured people were talking about it all over the, <laughs> like walking the halls, being like, hey. 
Bible word guy. I haven't walked the halls at Luther Seminary very much in the last. Oh yeah, that's a fair months, point. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, my department at Hendricks, we were five people until two years ago, and then three of us retired, and so there's only two left: a Bible scholar, me, and an Asian religion expert. And so I am at Luther taking some online classes in theology and church history, so I can wow. sort of. Re, you know, I've taken that stuff before, but it's been a little, like a minute. And so I'm uh, sort of refreshing my knowledge so I can teach those classes at Hendrix. That's great. That's yeah. uh, that's really exciting. I'll be interested to hear what you think. <laughs> yeah, I think it's <laughs> going to be good. I'm pretty excited. I'm yeah. pretty jazzed. Yeah, we, yeah. We've been doing online education since before it was cool. So yeah, be pretty that's great. good at it. Yeah, that's one of the things I knew is that Luther is a good school and also has a long sort of not they did you didn't just jump into online education like we like we did last year because we had to uh, on Zoom but uh, have been working on it for for a little while. So the occasion for which we have invited Dr. Howard to be with us is the publication of a book yeah. called The Old Testament for a Complex World: How the Bible's Dynamic Testimony Points to New Life for the church. And we're, we're really excited to talk more with you about it. Well, thanks for being interested in it. Yeah. (laughs) But I have to start. Do you listen to the podcast on being ever? I haven't in a long time. You haven't in a long time. Well, I like to pretend that I'm Krista Tippett. Okay. Krista Tippett always starts her interviews the same way. And it is with this question that I shall now pose to you. Will you tell us something about the spiritual background of your childhood? Whoa, okay. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that one. Part you of can my, an- it's just sort of like a context question, and you can answer it in terms of church. You can answer it in terms of nature. You can answer it in terms of science or philosophy or what, what I mean, whatever, whatever you feel like you were steeped in in your un- spiritual understanding yeah. of the world. Um, I think. Well, I grew up in the Presbyterian church. I grew up uh, as a Presbyterian around a lot of Baptists. So I grew up in Mississippi, deep Mm -hmm. South. um, And I think that when I went to seminary and then graduate school that, and I was around like Methodists and Episcopalians and Jews and (laughs) people from Mm -hmm. very different religious traditions than my own, I started to realize how Presbyterian I really am. Mm. (laughs) That the Mm. things that I learned Mm. about the Reformed tradition, some things about like polity, which, you know, relate to how I think about government. And, um, And I think particularly about the relationship between one's spiritual life and civic responsibility, civic Mm -hmm. action, that what Mm -hmm. you do or think in church matters for the world. It matters for um, being in the world and how you conduct yourself, um, you know, with your neighbors and how, uh, how you vote Mm -hmm. and um, how you shop and all sorts of things. So I think that that kind of integration between spiritual life and just the rest of life has always been um, Mm -hmm. really formative for me. Oh, I would not have known that that was a particularly Presbyterian thing, but I certainly can see it throughout your book and throughout, um, you know, my, my relationship with you as a colleague. So that's, that's really cool to know. Cameron, did you know when you went to seminary that you wanted to do PhD work? Yes and no. I think that it was kind of inevitable. I know people talk about their career choices, but I come from a family of teachers and all I know about is school. And there's some pastors back in there somewhere too. And so, you know, school and church are the only things I really know how to do. So I was like, well, I'll go to graduate school. But I did want to be a theologian. I thought I was going to get graduate Mm. degrees in feminist theology. Mm. And my first semester at Candler, I took systematic theology and Hebrew. 
And it turned out that, whoa, I hated mm-hmm. systematic theology. <laughs> I really loved Hebrew. Yeah, I loved the kind of openness of the language and the different possibilities that translation um, afforded for interpretation. And so that was what sort of turned my head toward Hebrew Bible. That's cool. So in the book, uh, you tell a story about going to dinner with a seminary president and giving your elevator pitch for your dissertation. Uh, and I was wondering if you could give your elevator pitch for this current book. It doesn't have to be like the three sentence, like 30 seconds, but like (laughs) if you were going to say in short order, like, what is your book about and what are you hoping that it would do? Like what, what's your pitch? Well, I want the book to start to make connections between critical biblical scholarship the stuff we do at seminaries and graduate schools and the kind of deep background on the Hebrew Bible that we get from that kind of academic study with the everyday life of the church. So I think that um, kind of in popular imagination and also in practice in many congregations, um, the Bible is like a, a, just a fixed, it's like a big rock, or it's like a big (laughs) fixed and static thing, whatever the images are that mean sort of uh, fixed and impenetrable uh, Mm -hmm. to you. We we come to the Bible in that way, and um, we think, well, I have to read what it says and then sort of extract what the guidelines for my life should be. And I think that anybody who has the opportunity to do more in-depth critical study of the Bible begins to realize that um, there's so much energy in the Bible that it what didn't come from just one person at one time. And it doesn't have um, one single idea about any particular topic. And so I want to start thinking about what it means to embrace that energy, that multiplicity, that fluidity um, in our thinking about church. But for this particular book, it is a book about the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, not about the church (laughs) primarily. So so it's starting to lay out um, where are some places where we can see um, that multiplicity in the text. And we can see change over time or change across communities and uh, or or the same community holding different ideas. I think at the end of the day, I want to push against any idea that the Bible wants us not to change because Mm -hmm. I think change is at the heart of the Bible. And so what does it mean for the church to lean into change and to think of that as a biblical idea Mm -hmm. and not something that we navigate despite the Bible? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I feel like that even that suggestion is such a sort of biblical move in that like you're taking something and like if if we can find ancient roots for this. Like we, we just feel more comfortable with it. And that's true in the Jewish community too. Like we can innovate, but if we can find, you know, connections to a couple hundred, couple thousand years ago to sort of anchor us as we do that, it just frees, I don't know, it, it frees up something. It feels mm-hmm. less scary when we feel anchored in that. So I, yeah, I can see how anchoring that in the biblical text itself would would open up some spaciousness. Amy, this reminds me of a a midrash, and I I um I don't remember exactly where it is, but do you remember this one? Or maybe Cameron, you know it too, uh, where Moses goes to a classroom with the great mm-hmm. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's, yeah, yeah, and he's like, "What on earth is this guy teaching? Like, this does sounds so crazy to me." And then I don't remember exactly how it goes, but Rabbi Akiva says, "I'm interpreting." the Torah as it was handed down to Moses on Sinai. And then right. Moses says, yes, okay, like I'm on board now. Even though he didn't really recognize what was being taught, it had its, those ancient yeah. roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that how that goes? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty much how that goes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Cameron, I was uh, listening to you talking about the, like, the excavation of a, of a rock <laughs> versus the like, energy uh, of change. And I had a conversation actually with somebody, it was related to this podcast, I use the expression, Amy and I 
try to open up the text for interpretation. And mm -hmm. the person I was talking to said, oh, no, that's not what biblical interpretation is, right? The Bible says things, and your job is to go figure it out. And I was like, oh, well, that, that, those are really very different ways mm -hmm. of thinking. Your metaphor in the book, which I love, mm -hmm. is I'm a metaphor. I'm obsessed with this metaphor. <laughs> yeah, I thought you might be, Amy. <laughs> is a metaphor of an atomic <laughs> reaction. Can you, yeah. can you talk a little bit about biblical interpretation as atomic reaction and what you mean by that? Yeah, just that, um, so that in atomic reaction, well, I better not talk about atomic reactions too much because I had a lot of help <laughs> with talking about the science of this. But the idea is that, you know, you have interpreters who, you know, each interpreter is different and we all interpret differently at different moments in our lives or, you know, because of different experiences. Then we have the text. And I like to think of them both as, in motion sort of in some way, and that when and that there is a collision and that every time there is this collision between text and interpreter there is the production of energy or light mm -hmm. um or you know you can also have atomic collisions that produce very destructive things like mm. nuclear reactions uh the big nuclear reactions that you know, destroy things. And so I think uh, it's not necessarily that you're always going to get to a very wonderful, positive <laughs> uh, reaction from interpreter meeting the Bible, but that there, that it's always different too, that there's this difference in the, and this is different from, as you say, Bobby, trying to get to the original answer. The one true meaning. Yeah. Right. Or the original intent. Mm -hmm. um, I just don't, I don't think that we can do that. Mm -hmm. And so I want to think of other ways that we can think about what we're doing when we encounter mm -hmm. scripture and these sort of little explosions every time. I think yeah. are fun. Part of what I love about that metaphor is I feel like it takes this really sort of heady realm of reader response theory, which is similar in what it's mm -hmm. suggesting, right? That like the, there is something created by the interaction of the reader and the text, but it's, you've moved it almost into this like mystical realm where there's like a, a creation of some kind of energy or new burgeoning truth, or, you know, you use if I'm gonna, I'm gonna quote you here, Cameron. Okay. You, <laughs> um, it's on page fourteen. In this analogy, readers and texts are both atomic particles. Like a solar wind, the Holy Spirit energizes the encounter between text and reader. Every encounter thus has the potential to form new molecules of interpretation, releasing energy as light and beauty. That's just so gorgeous. Well, thanks. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's very just it's gorgeous. I'm glad you and, like it. But. And I mean, like, okay, so I don't like move in the world with the Holy Spirit, but this also reminds me of so many mystical stories in the Jewish tradition about what happens when we study Torah. That something mm. happens, like energetically, spiritually, in the world that would not have, like we were releasing sparks into creation through our interaction with the text. And so I love how you've come at that through um, atomic particle collisions. <laughs> I love it. Amy, that was reminding me of a conversation that you and I were having on the Pentecost text last May, where you were remembering like the sparks that come out of the, by the Holy, the sparks of the Holy Spirit. And you were thinking about a midrash where you know what I'm talking about. Can you remind? Can you remind me that story? Yeah, I think. Gosh, I'm not going to quote the story very well because I, I love this story to death and always forget a lot of the details. But it's a, a story of um, Jewish folks who are studying Torah all night long during Shavuot, which is just a tradition. Um, which Shavuot is sort of like falls around Pentecost in that calendar, and people stay up all night studying and. Um, it says that like flames erupted from the text because the people who were studying were joining together words within the text that had never been joined together before. Like they were releasing them to, mm. to be able to unite and do something new and different that had real like 
spiritual energetic ramifications in the world. Oh, I love that. Beautiful. Do you think that this happens with the biblical text in a way that it doesn't happen with other texts? Like, do you think this is generally true, Mm. that this is how humans interact with texts and stories and stuff? That's a really great question and one that I actually think about a lot because, um, you know, I said I come from a family of teachers. They're all English teachers. Mm. And so literature has always been a big part of my life um, and how I just sort of navigate the world. And I do think there's something about good literature, (laughs) wherever you find it, that is very energizing and helps you see. I mean, there's a way that fiction, for example, gives us a prism through which to see the real world in new ways, in ways that we might not get by just reading Mm -hmm, the newspaper. mm -hmm. In fact, in my classes, um, in all my electives now, we start every class with a novel, Um, occasionally a short story, but usually we read a, a different novel. And I find that it really helps students to, um, first of all, just sort of get in the interpretation mode, Mm -hmm. just practice reading texts, any texts, Um, and also to help them do that without the kind of freightedness of this is the Bible and I have to say this thing about the Bible or I have to come to this conclusion or I'm trying to do this with the Bible. Um, But I guess ultimately, confessionally, I do affirm um, that there is something about the Bible that is, if I may use the words from the Presbyterian churches, uh, what are these, the constitutional questions, Mm -hmm. the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ and God's word to you today or something like Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that there is a similar um, thing that happens or can happen mm-hmm. with the careful reading of any text. I, I love the way you talk about that. Cause I mean, one of the things that I say to my students is like the Bible has power, wh- whether you want it to or not confessionally yeah. or not, like the Bible does stuff in the world. And what I say is in a way that Moby Dick does not. Um, right. But what you're saying is actually that's not, entirely true, like Moby Dick did and does have power in the world. It's just a different level of power or something because of the way the Bible historically has been read, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think, I, I think I agree with you and also what I said before, which is yeah. mm-hmm. that there's a level at which the Bible does. I mean, if we want to talk about literature, right, you can't, Uh, fully grasped 19th century or Victorian, you know, British literature, if you are not familiar with the Bible, because those references are in there all the time. That's actually um, how I started studying Bible. Oh, really? Because I didn't didn't understand literature. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so the, um, and of course, you know, the Bible is brought up in policy decisions, even this very day. So Mm -hmm. um, the Bible, right, does have does have an impact on our everyday life, regardless of if we um, think of it confessionally yeah. or not. I just yeah. happen also to do that. And and I I would just add that I'm not sure what I would say confessionally about what I think that the Bible is. That's I don't know. I just don't really think in that category, I guess. But going back to this sort of like energy analogy that we started with, I think the fact that Generations and generations and generations and generations of us have invested so much energy into this text, like fundamentally changes what it is. Like that's a really big atom that you're colliding with because other humans through time have yeah. have invested their own energy in it. Yeah. And, and so while I don't want to get back to like, or don't think we can, who is the original author? I don't think that when I'm reading the Bible, I can say, this is connecting me with this particular human being. I do think that reading the Bible connects us with other people yeah. through time. And yeah. those those voices 
who are characters in the Old Testament, even if a particular character never existed in history, there are people with those experiences who lie behind those characters. And so there are these connections that are being made um, Mm -hmm. with interpreters and with sort of the, the ancient voices that we find there. And that's, that's really exciting yeah. too, to me. Uh, so Cameron, we've been talking a little bit about this sort of like, I mean, the mystical, the atomic, the, you know, the, the fire that emerges. So I want to shift us to talking about J-E-D-N-P, the <laughs> source critical <laughs> theory. And I say it that way because I think that is the way that a lot of people who have a seminary education or a PhD tend to talk about source theory. It's like, I learned this thing about JD and P. It has no value for me. Like, I don't know why I spent however long I spent learning that theory in seminary, never going to talk about it. When I try to mention source theory to people in church congregations, most people have like lay people have never heard of it, but you're trying to make the case in your book that things like source theory are, are important for the church. And so I'm just curious if you take that example, source theory in the Pentateuch, J-E-D-P, or how that's Wellhausen's formulation, however you want to put it together. Why do you think churches should care about it? So I think churches should care that um, more than one person with, uh, and, and more than one perspective are behind the composition of the Pentateuch. I'm not super concerned about you know, cutting out these sentences for J and these for D and these for P or whatever. Um, though I do find those discussions interesting. I mean, I, I'm a biblical scholar. I like thinking about those things. But I think that for the church to sort of use that as a way into the idea that there are multiple perspectives contained within the Bible is really important because I do think we're, we're often trying to say, well, you know, what does the Bible say about fill in the blank with your favorite hot button issue? Mm -hmm. But then we also, when we read the Bible, we come across stuff that's really objectionable (laughs) to our sort of moral sensibilities, for example. Often um, the first 10 or 12 chapters of the book of Joshua are a significant kind of stumbling block for people Mm -hmm. who are, you know, interested in reading the Bible. And then they read that and they think, what what am I supposed to do with that? So I think that if we if we flatten out the Bible and we say, well, it's all we have to figure out how it all makes complete sense, kind of of a piece, then we're left with some with fewer avenues for sort of comprehending what could have been going on behind telling this story in this way versus you know this moment of great liberation in the Exodus or the call to advocate for the poor and the prophets or that, that if we're just thinking about, well, the Bible is all one big like block of things that have to make total sense together. I mean, it doesn't take long thinking about that to really just run into a wall. Hey everybody, it's Bobby here. We hope you're enjoying this special edition of the podcast with Dr. Cameron Howard, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary. Bible Worm is made possible by a dedicated group of supporters who give generously to help us keep the podcast going. If you'd like to become part of the community of Bible Worm supporters, we invite you to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can join for as little as $4 a month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access to episodes, membership in the Bible Worm collaborative Zoom chat and Discord page, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, and more. See patreon.com slash Podcast for details. And now, back to our special episode with Dr. Cameron Howard. So one of my favorite parts of this book was where you started looking at other ancient Near Eastern stories Mm -hmm. that align closely with some of the stories that we have in the Hebrew Bible. And one of the reasons in particular I like it is that I have heard before sometimes when congregants or students hear that there are, for example, flood narratives in many cultures, they will say one of two things. (laughs) That proves there was a flood. 
mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. they all have stories of it. Or that proves the Bible's made up. Like it just mm-hmm. copied from other mm-hmm. places. Mm-hmm. But you found another way. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the the sort of the meaning that you draw? And it can be about flood stories in particular or just sort of more generally. How do you think about these these stories that have such close parallels in other ancient Near Eastern cultures? Yeah, well, I put that under the heading of adapting popular culture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thinking of those flood narratives as the favorite kinds of stories and then um, using that material to tell a new story or a di- give a different take on uh, an existing story. I think we do this like in movies all the time, right? So um, anytime there's like a, well, for example, there's this new satire on um, Apple plus Schmigadoon. That's which I haven't watched yet, yet. but it's like make taking the sort of musical and spinning off and doing something different um and it satirizes it and that's that's taking one genre and pushing it into another uh gosh I'm sure you all can think of of examples just any any kind of like the the skeleton of a a story um you know like a coming of age narrative we we do this all the time we don't just think up every story we tell out of nothing but we take some existing parameters and use those ideas to tell the story that we want to tell. And so the Bible's just doing that. <laughs> um, uh, it's just a very normal way, I think, of storytelling. And so we we should embrace that. Yeah, I taught um, a class recently about Rosh Hashanah um, in my community. And at Rosh Hashanah, there's a lot of God as king language Mm -hmm. that some people really like and some people really don't like. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we talked about was that this, you know, there's a whole story of God being um, coronated, re-coronated, coronated again on on Rosh Hashanah. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the, the kingness of the deity becomes like really central. But there's also this, this story in the ancient Near East like surrounding the community of Israel. And so my point in sharing that story with a class was we can talk about the king language for sure, but don't be so hung up on it because it was just sort of part of the inherited storyline that was around them. And I'm a little more interested in what they do with what they do with that, like what they're trying, the story they're trying to tell with those building blocks that are that are already mm-hmm. there instead of objecting to the building blocks. So strongly. So Cameron, I was curious about what you think this means practically speaking. If if I'm thinking about, you know, I'm a church pastor, I know that the flood stories draw on Mesopotamian parallels and I want to do something with that. Are are you thinking like I ought to be preaching atrahasis or am I teaching this in Sunday school or like, what am I doing? How How is this manifesting itself in your mind, uh, in, in my mm. context? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely don't think you should be preaching Atrahasis <laughs> <Okay>. or, <laughs> or trying to explain the things that I'm trying to explain in the chapter from mm. the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I don't think that makes for good proclamation. But I do think as a church is exploring Um, what it means to tell its story, for instance, um, or what it means to think about themselves as a Bible-based church. You know, we get this kind of language a lot. We do biblical preaching. We have a, you know, we're a Bible-based congregation. I think knowing those things can undergird your, your thinking about your own mission and values in potentially new ways. So, so, and I think there are a lot of challenges that come to churches these days that we never could have predicted. I mean, what does it mean to be 
inclusive? Um, you know, what does it mean to be um, to be a community that's interested in justice? Like, there are just so many different angles that come <laughs> with some of these traditional th- the, the things that we say, right? The things that we say we want to be inclusive. Well, gosh, that there's there's just a lot that's freighted with that now. And so, rather than thinking I've got to pin down exactly like this means X, Y, Z, you know, we can be adaptable. We can um, not be afraid of what new thing is ahead or what Mm -hmm. new way of orienting us to the world is presented because the Bible was like, it reflects the experiences of people doing that very same thing. So I, I think I'm probably like frustrating in the way that I don't have like the clear example of this is the thing you should do for your church because you know about um, the flood story. But I do think that the more that we chip away at the kind of um, uh, the, the perception that the Bible has to be either like some that it could somehow be followed to a T or either that we'll ignore it when we can't do that. But if we can chip away within our faith communities at those kinds of ways of thinking about the Bible and introduce through the good preaching that people are doing out there or through the new ideas that congregations have and through being able to find the way that the Bible was always doing that too. I don't want people to ignore the Bible. And I think that um, particularly in progressive uh, congregations, there's less sort of language for understanding where the Bible fits into the kind of everyday decisions that a church might make. And so I think that if we are exploring more this multiplicity within the Bible, that that gives a little more room to make connections between the life of the church and scripture. Mm-hmm. But I do hope, I mean, I'm a Bible scholar. I am not a church leadership professor or something like that. So I'm hoping that there are folks out there who can take this and run with it in ways that I can't see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, as you were talking, Cameron, I was um, thinking about uh this sort of general idea that I try to keep in my mind. I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that um, we humans, I don't know, we religious communities, we something like to look for old anchor points, you know, like we like to say like, well, King Solomon said that, and that makes me feel, you know, like that's rock solid. It's not some weird innovation that's going to blow away in the wind. But sometimes I think that drive pushes us to sort of reify the original meaning of something, the oldest meaning we can come up with. The oldest context is the context. And I think in some ways this, like the way that you're showing that these older contextual pop culture, old pop culture storylines weave their ways through the biblical text really shows that like, if you only look for the oldest iteration of something and say, that's the real one, it's just not going to serve you very well. You know, it, it that's, right. that's not really how things work. Right. And the, and the world is different, like in significant ways than it was 3000 odd years ago. Indeed. Uh, not to mention different places, different cultures. So just sort of the kind of intellectual honesty I think that we need to have about the Bible is that it is different and that the way that it speaks to us today does not have to be sort of um, uh, just extracting uh, an answer from some verse or set of verses that sound a little bit like the issue we're facing, but to kind of zoom out and think about it a little bit more. Yeah. From a, I always said holistically, and that's not the right word because that, I think that that implies that it's all one big piece. But um, but getting still a bigger picture of the kind of the, the fractures and the seam lines in the text. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
One of the things that I really love that you did with this book is you took a couple of examples, and I thought they were really nice ones, of Deuteronomy kind of reworking Exodus. And I mean, in Deuteronomy is sort of self-aware, like this is Moses at the edge of the promised land saying, God didn't make a covenant with our ancestors in Egypt. God is making a covenant with us here today, and here's what it looks like. And then Deuteronomy kind of changes up some things. Your your example or your prime example was the centralization of the of worship in Jerusalem. And then you also use Ezekiel sort of reworking the Zion theology, saying, okay, well, God actually can be in places other than in Jerusalem, but the ideal is that God would be back in Jerusalem. And like you were really, I thought, in a helpful way, showing the flexibility that biblical thinkers have within a kind of consistent, like there are certain things that they they seem committed to, right? God cares for Israel. Mm-hmm. God wants to be in Jerusalem, you know. Um, but the ways they get at that kind of shifts over time. I thought that was a really nice kind of way of showing how the Bible is already engaged in reinterpreting the tradition within itself, which sort of opens up that permission for us to re-engage the tradition for ourselves. Like like you were saying, we're, the issues are different today, but the issues were different then too, right? The issues were different right. for Ezekiel than they were. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I really found that pretty provocative in terms of like, what's my role as an interpreter? Well, it's maybe it's actually not that different from Ezekiel's role. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, that sounds a little strong when I say it that way, but is that kind of what you're saying? Like if Ezekiel can do it, so can Williamson? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Or if you're, if you're wanting to be like Ezekiel, although there are a lot of reasons not to be like Ezekiel, but <laughs> I'm going to go shave half um, my beard and cook some bread on poop. <laughs> <laughs> it, but what does it mean to be a, a biblical interpreter? If the Bible is the model for how we think about who God is and how God is in relationship with the world. Well, what the biblical writers are doing is rethinking, you know, it matters if Babylon's in charge or if Persia's in charge or, you know, if Alexander's coming through, like that, it, there's a, um, there's a need to rethink the fundamentals of the faith with changing circumstances I know we're all tired of talking about the pandemic, but I think it's a a great example of like people were convinced that the best way to have a church community, you know, many people, not everybody was gathering in person. And what if you can't gather in person anymore? You know, we didn't just stop and say, that's not gonna, that doesn't count anymore. (laughs) Uh, We can't do church anymore, but we're going to figure out a new way. I mean, so yeah, my point is that that kind of thing is happening all the time in the Bible or on the biblical timeline. And you, we see it reflected in the Bible. And sometimes we have to dig around a little bit to see how that's reflected, um, that it's not always obvious at first glance. Mm-hmm. I think this idea is really, is a really lovely idea. And that, you know, that there are multiple voices and we can find our way kind of in multiple voices and we can we can be innovative within our tradition. The concern, I mean, obviously, I think from a certain kind of perspective, and, and it's a legitimate one, is are we just sliding into some kind of relativism where I can reinvent the tradition however I want in light of whatever cross-cultural influences I am drawn to? And I know that's not what you mean, but I'm curious how do you like how do you think about that danger of if the tradition is flexible, it can be flexed into kind of anything. How how do you guard against that danger? Yeah, well, um, one thing that I tell my students is that um, I like to have a theological center for myself that I can name that. Um, you know, this is particularly in the context when it seems to sort of chafe against the what we think we know about who God is and the kind of fundamentals of faith, the kind of first semester Old Testament class stuff. But I think it also can apply here um, that we, 
there there are some fundamentals that we hold to be true and to sort of start with that as a center from which to read. And I think eventually we might even reevaluate some of those fundamentals and that's okay. But I think for, so an example for me is that um, there was this really very tragic death uh, of one of my cousins a couple of years ago. And um, it, it, it was just horrific. And I could not I just could not get my head around it. And then I had to give a faith statement at a Lenten program at my church, like a couple of weeks later. And I was like, what am I going to say? Like, what do I even know? Like this, this happening does not fit with what I have proclaimed about who God is and the fact that God cares about human beings and their bodies and their lives. So I went, you know, I was thinking and thinking and on all of that. And eventually I knew that I could say in life and in death, we belong to God, which is something I learned from my Presbyterian spiritual center growing Mm -hmm. up and that I could stand there. And so that if other things were falling down around me, that was something that I could affirm even in very dire circumstances. And so I think I think it's a worthwhile exercise as we read to also think about, well, what is the thing that I know that I know to be true? And sometimes even that will, of course, be shaken. But but I think to go into this kind of very open and expansive sense of interpretation with a faith that says, I want to know everything I can about who God is and the stories uh, that have come down to us, the poems, uh, the scripture, I want to know more. And so rather than shutting down and saying, I can't think about that because that might take down my tradition. I'm going to say, what if I open up that possibility and look at it for a while? I think then we can say, no, I don't think that that is a a way to read. I mean, I think, and I think that that has to be done ultimately though in community. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that we read not only in our individual silos, but that we read in community and that it's engaging with other voices who have different ideas about the text than our own, that that can be fruitful instead of just this slide into relativism or whatever, Mm -hmm. that other people and our obligations to our neighbors and our interest and love for our neighbors is what is the check on that ultimate relativism. Thank you. What Can I turn that around though and say, what do you think? I mean, both <laughs> of you as biblical interpreters, is there, um, yeah, is there uh, something that limits us as interpreters or should limit us or everything fair game what do you think yeah i mean i'm i'm doing a little work um right now on a project uh, that's related to walter brueggemann's corpus and i was just working on uh some stuff on his claims about the authority of scripture and he actually comes out in a in an interesting way very close to where you came out just now and he says there is a he doesn't like the term inerrancy he likes the term inherency there is an inherency mm-hmm. in scripture, a claim that orients his interpretation, which is the God who creates the world in love, redeems the world in suffering, and will consummate the world in joyous well-being, which you'd have to play with his terms a little bit. But that sort of move of God is the creator who loves, God is the one who redeems even in suffering, God is the one who is bringing us to a better future. Um, I think there's something really, really lovely about that idea. And yeah, I was trying to think, because Amy and I definitely, when we're talking on the podcast, like we kind of explore ideas and toss things out there, but we, and we definitely say like, nope, that like <laughs> we tried that idea and that idea is not a good idea. And I don't quite know, like, I think to me, it's partly it's reading with Amy and sort of hearing like her reflection. I, I think your reflection about community is exactly right, Cameron. Um, but also I think at the end of the day, for me, what is core in the biblical text is that God has created us for love of the neighbor in which neighbor is understood expansively to mean the whole community of, of 
people and of the environment, you know. And so if it draws us closer to that community, it is a good interpretation of scripture. If it pushes us in ways that fracture community, we need to be a little a little careful about that. And I don't know that that's the be all and end all, but I think that's kind of how I work. The other thing that I would say about that is the way you read and I think the way that I work anyway is also a little bit about humility. Like put ideas out there boldly, like make the claim and say, let's see where this text goes. This text goes here uh, when I interact with it. And then if someone says, you know, or my community says, this is a problematic interpretation in ways X, Y, and Z, I can be willing to say like, yep, you're right. That was problematic. I need to back off. Or, you know, the claim that I make is not the only claim that could be made. I I think this is a practice of humility, um, this sort of interpretive Rather than, you know, here I stand on the rock of scripture, it's I am engaging with scripture and it is one engagement of possible engagements that I need to hold Mm -hmm. firmly, but a little loosely. Amy, what would you say about Mm -hmm. that? This is not a question I think about a lot. And I think that my answer feels really different from from y'all's in some ways. I mean, I, I mean, think- you're two Presbyterians over here, so I think your answer might well be different. <laughs> I mean, I think, okay, my my sort of goalposts, I guess. First of all, I find, I just have to name that, like, I find it so frustrating when people are like, as soon as you expand anything, you're going to fall off a cliff. Like, <laughs> yeah. you're not going to fall off a cliff. Like, there's a whole lot of room <laughs> before you fall off the cliff. And this, like, seeking some kind of, like, it's like a, those old purity tests that you take in middle school. Like, how pure are your beliefs? Like, you have to stay in this little, anyway, it, it, I don't, I don't like the, mm-hmm. I don't like the objection in the first place. But my sort of goalposts are God is the biggest mystery that, there ever was or will be, and we're actually not going to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Nobody is going to figure it out uh, here on Earth. And the the testimonies that we have in the scripture we inherit are real, earnest, the the best words that people could put around their experience of God in the world, which is a totally indescribable thing that people are trying to put into human language and doing the best they can with it. And so I think there's real like truth and energy in it. And also that it it's, it's, it's all just people's best, <laughs> you know, best attempt to translate into human terms, something that is fundamentally not human. Like I was um, reading at, I was, reading some Torah with a 12-year-old a couple of weeks ago, getting ready for his bar mitzvah. And um, we were reading the story where Moses um, wants to see God face to face. And God says, you cannot see, no one can see my face and live. No human can see my face and live. And so he was thinking about like, well, does that mean you would just drop dead if you saw God's face? Like that doesn't really make sense. And then he said it, what if it's like the way that butterflies see colors we can't see? Like what Mm -hmm. if, humans can't, by definition, because we are human, we can't live a human life and also see God because we're not butterflies. Mm. Aren't 12-year-olds so smart? That's brilliant. So I don't know. I think think that's a lot of how I see what Scripture is trying to do. Should we ask Cameron about the narrative lectionary? <laughs> we probably should. Yeah, because we're kind of, you know, we're kind of pushing. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. So, Cameron, one of the things that was interesting to me in the book was I'm just reading along, and then suddenly I'm reading about the narrative lectionary, which I know is based, as we were saying before, um, at your place at Luther Seminary. You, on the one hand, express some appreciation for the kind of theological coherence of the narrative lectionary. And at the same time, you have some pretty substantial concerns about the project of coherent narrative of the Bible. Could you talk a little bit about how you think about the narrative lectionary project and what we 
as people who are on this podcast engaged with the narrative lectionary in various ways, what we should, you think we should be aware of? Yeah, I, so one of the wonderful things about the narrative lectionary is that um, congregations who adopt it preach on the Old Testament uninterrupted for weeks and weeks leading up to Advent, as I recall. Um, I mean, they offer a gospel reading if you want it, but if you're committed to it, you're in the Old Testament. And um, it's, it has been my experience that a lot of churches don't preach a lot on the Old Testament. It's usually, the, the nor the epistles, it's usually the gospel, right? It's usually the gospel reading. And so I appreciate the fact that the narrative lectionary has folks linger in the Old Testament when they might otherwise um, not do that. And so I, I think that's fabulous. And I think there's a way that the narrative lectionary does give a kind of timeline to things um, that sometimes is obscured, certainly by preaching on, you know, 13 verses at a time from somewhere random in the Bible as we tend to do week to week. But I do resist the idea that it is one big story because I think that that obscures the ways, well, a couple of things. First of all, the ways that it's not all a story. Um, I think it's really, really important to acknowledge the different genres that are present in the, in the Bible. Poetry is a huge one to be able to say that this is, this text is poetry and we read poetry differently than we read a legal text or a narrative text. What does it mean for something to be, have the prophetic tag on it? You know, um, in my classes, we'll muse on the idea of classifying Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as historical books, as in the Christian canon or the former prophets, as in the Jewish canon. And what does that mean for how we even start to read those, those books? So I think appreciating the different genres in the Bible is really important, looking beyond story. But I, I also think that there's, it's not just one story, <laughs> um, that there are lots of different sort of tracks, <laughs> lots of different ideas about who ancient Israel was, what it meant to be a member of that community, ideas that change both over time, but also different ideas that existed side by side. And if we say there's one story, then we leave out particular voices. And of course, there are voices that are not even recorded there that we should also think about. And I think, you know, Christianity is always trying to get to the next thing, right? So you have the prophets, but they're just pointing to the next thing, which is Jesus. And then you get to Revelation and it's pointing to the next thing, which is when Jesus comes again, right? And there's, there's a beginning and there's a middle and there's an end and the end takes priority. Um, there's a way that the end starts to look better, right? People take an evolutionary look at the story sometimes, which is deeply problematic. Um, so yeah, I, while I do think there is some value in sort of seeing, um, appreciating a bigger kind of canonical arc, I, I do think that the, the, there's a lot in the pieces that we overlook when we don't. Uh, when we think about it as just one big story. Have you all talked about some of those ideas or others when you've been looking at the narrative lectionary? Yeah, Amy, I'm curious. We talk about this from time to time. I'm curious your reflections on what, on what Cameron said or and or about the narrative lectionary. No, I mean, I think everything that Cameron said really resonates for me, although it was surprising to me. I mean, what do I know? But I'm always complaining to Bobby about how little Hebrew Bible is in the narrative lectionary. <laughs> I mean, he's been so oh. long in the Gospels and, in, you know, like, but of course, I'm used to like the whole year being only in the Torah, you know, so, <laughs> so, you know, whatever. So, so I just feel like there's so much that's, 
that's missed, but it's but it's helpful to have that comparison point of like actually it's more than you <laughs> more than you might get using another <laughs> yeah. using another system. And I actually maybe I shouldn't admit this. I don't know. I didn't know that part of the project was to to create like one story. I didn't know that about the narrative lectionary. So yeah, that that does sound problematic to me. Maybe not problem. I mean, problematic, but like an oversimplification. Like it just blurs out all those details we just talked about pulling out, like as and like really engaging all of ourselves and reading the text. If you have to make it all fit into one story that goal controls your reading in some way. Like you're prioritizing mm-hmm. that arc over prioritizing the text, it seems to me. So, yes, I affirm Cameron's concern. <laughs> yeah, when I first started, you know, we tell the story from time to time about how we started this podcast, which was I called Amy one Saturday and was like, we should do a podcast. And she said, okay. And then we recorded the first episode like, eight days later on a Friday and posted it <laughs> like 10 days later. Like we didn't know yeah. what we were doing. Um, no. And my pitch was, look, narrative lectionary in the fall Hebrew Bible in the spring New Testament. And she was like, that sounds good. Um, but I didn't know what the new narrative lectionary really was doing either. And so it slowly dawned on us <laughs> in the first season, like, oh, we're picking like key moments in the story that are going to point us to what the gospel is doing in the spring which there is value in that. And also there is so much that you miss. I, I, I think that's exactly right. I like the narrative lectionary, you know, like you've got to have some orienting principle, I think, to what you're going to preach on a Sunday morning. The narrative mm-hmm. lectionary, the revised lectionary, or like thematic, you know, like we're going to do theme X for six weeks. And so I think the narrative lectionary is a nice alternative. But I do think a lot and especially doing this podcast with Amy I think I try to think a lot about like well what like we are Amy's Amy's way of saying I, I don't know if I've got this quite right but uh, it's something like you're in the in the narrative lectionary you are reading the Christian Old Testament you are not reading the Hebrew scriptures or something like that I don't know if you put it quite like that Amy but there's a framework that Christianizes what we're reading is that is that fair to say Oh, yes. I, mean, I think that's very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even what's so hard, right, is that for a lot of people in the pews, the 15 to 18 minutes of the sermon are what they're getting of the Bible in a week. And so I, I am fully supportive of any kind of lectionary project or or set of themes that's going to get people thinking about the Bible, um, not just in the Gospels, but beyond the Gospels. So, you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to trash on it or anything. No, I no just wanna, of course. Not at yeah. all. But to be aware of limitations of what we're doing. And there are limitations with whatever we do. Yeah. Yes. Right. Right. That's right. right. And, and then a community's got to figure out for itself or, or, or pastors got to figure out what is my community need, need to learn because all the educating and all the pro- proclamation is happening in those 18 minutes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. for right. many people. So that's a, it's a hard thing to do. One of the things I've noticed people doing is you, so the narrative lectionary usually runs from sort of the Sunday after Labor Day until about Memorial Day until uh, Pentecost. And then there's a summer that's, you know, from like the middle of May till the middle of September, which is not scripted on the narrative. Not, yeah, maybe, maybe like first of June to the, to the middle of September, which mm-hmm. is not scripted on the narrative lectionary. And I think that's a great opportunity and different churches do it in different ways. But like you were saying, to, to pick up some of the pieces, like what, what are we missing? Like, let's just do an arc on the story of, I don't know, Abraham or this summer, some people were doing Jeremiah um, or Revelation, which, you know, is one of the also there's there's also Christian texts that get skipped in the narrative lectionary. Um, I think that might be one one good solution. Mm-hmm. All right, Cameron, you've given us lots of great stuff to think about. Thank you so much for talking with us uh, today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Um, The book, once again, is The Old Testament for a Complex World, 
how the Bible's dynamic testimony points to new life for the church. Y'all should check it out. It's a good one. All right. Cameron, thanks. Amy, see you next time. See you next time. Be well, y'all. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We are grateful to our many supporters for helping us keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois. Join us next time when we'll be back with our regular episodes. Until then, keep on digging.